Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast series. I have a returning guest, Luis Luis P. Villarreal. He's a professor emeritus of molecular biology and biochemistry. Um, He was also a founding director, Center for Virus Research at University of California, Irvine. And uh, Luis is uh, one of the big you know, thinkers in the world of uh, viruses. I've interviewed him before. He's got a lot of insights, and uh, we're going to talk today. So, Luis, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, doing well uh, and uh, staying safe in light of this pandemic. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, I'm sure you have some great insights on, you know, coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2. Maybe start with the origins. What, um, what appears to be the origin of this virus? Well, most emerging viruses that go on to cause uh, acute epidemics or a pandemic in human and other species uh, typically come from a particular species found in the region that has an inapparent persistent uh, lifelong infection. Uh, And it turns out that bats in all parts of the world are are just uh, species that harbor an awful lot of coronaviruses as well as other viruses. Uh, And they're, they're specific to the species of bat, to the region that they're isolated from, and they're very numerous. And in their host species, for the most part, they show almost no disease. Uh, If you see them being reproduced in the lung, you don't see any inflammation, just a little bit of virus being made. And this is a very stable, uh, persistent state that's really poorly studied in terms of mechanism. But it's ubiquitous in terms of the biology of the bat and the biology of the virus. In the context of, of China, uh, it has been studied somewhat because of the SARS outbreak that occurred years back, uh, and people went out to try to figure out what was the nature of the coronaviruses we find in the bat population. And something like 400 distinct versions of coronaviruses were found uh, in the, the Chinese bat populations. Similar, you could make a study like that in the United States, and it's been done here as well. And you can find an equally large and diverse set of coronaviruses associated with the bats in the Americas. These are... Um... These are viruses that haven't endogenized into the bat's DNA. No, they're not. They're not endogenized. It's, a, it's not like the retroviruses, um, or it's not even like the phyloviruses, which have bits and pieces of them endogenized in some of the African bats. Um, this is a, an epigenome, but it's it's a very stable relationship. These bats, in many cases, have co-evolved uh, with the viruses uh, that that they harbor. These coronaviruses, in some cases. They swap around, they can infect, they can cause disease sometimes, but for the most part in the right species of bat, uh, in the right location, they just get passed um, generation to generation uh, with very little disease associated with them. But these are the same viruses that are the source of the emergent epidemics we see in other species. So it's like a, a microbiome of the bat in a way, or it's like a virum of the bat? Well, it's an epigenome of the bat. We have our own epigenomes. Uh, humans have a fair number of viruses that are inapparent and stable in them. They're mostly DNA viruses, like the herpes viruses. We have seven types of herpes viruses that many of us harbor. 
We have a lot of papillomaviruses. We have some polyomaviruses. We have some adenoviruses. And uh, many of these will set up a very long-term uh, persistent, if not lifelong, infection in which, for the most part, there's no disease, but sometimes it can be perturbed and cause disease or cause cancers or, or cause other problems to the host. But for the most part, they're an uh, inapparent occupant of our bodies. They're our epigenome, in a sense. And I would say that this uh, set of viruses, the coronaviruses, are part of the bat virus epigenome, as well as other viruses. Bats are particularly prone uh, to persistently be colonized by an array of RNA viruses, which uh, don't colonize humans. What, what do you mean... I'm not clear. What do you mean they're part of our epigenome? Well, uh, if I go out and, 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 for example, I do this in the context of rodents, if I go out and, and catch myself a house mouse, Mus musculus domesticus, the one you find in lots of homes, it's likely to going to be persistently infected with up to 20 different viruses, including a coronavirus, by the way, called mouse hepatitis virus. Mm. And it's likely to be a very healthy animal, uh, and these viruses aren't causing problems uh, in this particular host. Yet, if I take that animal and I bring it to a colony of mice that has no virus in it, chances are that the uninfected, unpersistent colony of mice will collapse. If you try to breed them, because the virus is coming from uh, the wild mouse, will decimate the, the reproductive success of the uh, sort of laboratory mice. I used to study these viruses for a long time. It was kind of my specialization, and I was the bane of the veterinary biologist at the animal facility because I would be bringing in mice with persistent infections and they're, they're trying their hardest to keep them out because they know it will damage the reproduction of their colony. So this is a kind of a long known situation, but is not popularly appreciated. Uh, this is such a, a prevalent state. So where do they, um, so they're not endogenized and they're not actively trying to, you know, kill the host, it seems. They're symbiotic. So yeah, I was going to ask you, what is this state called? Like, are they are they contributing anything to the creature that they reside in? Well, or they I just, just like... pointed out something that that they contribute. If you take two colonies of mice next to each other, like in different haystacks, for example, and one of them is uh, colonized with uh, the mouse coronavirus, mouse hepatitis virus, it's called, and the other one is not, and you bring this into reproductive contact, so uh, the two mice are mixing reproductively. Well, what'll happen is the uh, the mouse that is not colonized with the virus will basically die off because the young get infected. They're not protected. They're not transmitted by the mother. And uh, the survivors will be the persistently infected mice. So it does have a survival value that's oh, measurable wow. in the lab. Oh, so it's like a, uh, it's like a weapon. It is, it, but it's, huh. a, it's one that's uh, kept in check, right? So the, in order for the virus to provide that type of uh, consequence in competition with other species and hosts, it has to maintain the capacity to do harm. It can't just be an in, innocuous, uh, inapparent infection. This is not true only for these coronaviruses and arenaviruses and various others. Uh, we know that uh, herpes viruses can operate this way uh, in terms of breeding success. Uh, try to breed um, African uh, and uh, Indian elephants together. They harbor their own version of herpes virus. And in the young, these viruses uh, cross-transmitted to the other species are lethal because they cause encephalitis in the cross species. So this phenomenon is known in a variety of circumstances. It's usually not considered as an evolutionarily important point, even though it seems to me it would have to be. But in evolutionary biology, for example, this topic, this issue is almost non-existent. Wait, so, so from what I know, a species is defined as, you know, not being able to reproduce with another species for the most part. But Okay, so within the, the same species, would some 
you know, creatures have the virus and they're living with it as a low level infection, but they can affect other of their same species and affect them in a way that where they really, you know, they kill them. Basically, yes. Uh, Depending on the context of that, that relationship, but it's not limited to the same species, although that is probably primary consequence. Uh, Some of these viruses, like the coronavirus, do have a propensity to cross into other species and replicate, at least acutely. Here's another point is the capacity for persistent long-term low-level infection is quite specific. That's not something that tends to jump species. So uh, we, for example, tend to get acute infections that only last for the life of the acute disease uh, when one of these viruses comes out of one species into us. For that virus to set up a lifetime, a long-term persistent infection in us is biologically rather difficult. And to me, one of the really troubling things about this particular coronavirus is it's doing something along those lines. It's it's infecting some people in in a parent persistent way that allows them to transmit the infection without really showing significant signs of infection. Usually your adaptive and innate immune system responds very quickly uh, to the presence of a foreign agent like a virus. So you get get a relatively short window at which the virus is inapparent because it's it's basically uncoding and starting to replicate. And then it starts making virus and disease sets in very quickly. Uh, This virus uh, seems almost like it's trying to establish a persistent infection in humans. That's why it's so difficult to control. Wow. So why would, um, within the same species, why with, with, you know, in person A, would the virus be a low-level, non-symptomatic infection? We don't know that. We, we actually don't know why this works in the species it does work. And this is a very thinly studied topic. So if you ask for the mechanism, in mice, we have some insight into how a coronavirus sets up a persistent infection. Uh, but the coronaviruses of bats are a different clade, a different group of viruses. And the specifics of how they uh, establish these infections is just uh, pretty much a mystery that hasn't been explored. So th- th- even though this is a very ubiquitous state, we have 400 of these viruses in Asia itself. Uh, if you ask, well, in their native host, how is the virus doing what it's doing? We just shrug because we have almost no data on that issue. Well, the, like, you know, in looking at herpes, for instance, um, it seems like people would have it for a very long time and then it flares up at some yeah, point. Yeah, herpes is well understood, um, a human virus of considerable interest, and uh, but it did take a long time to sort out how herpes establishes latency and, and how it uh, puts itself into a silent mode in a neuron, a trigeminal ganglion, for example, and how it can reactivate uh, in connection to what that host cell is doing, particularly things that traumatize the cell, uh, cause it to go into a reactivation program. So herpes has a very peculiar and specific and human-specific program in which it sets up a latency and can really last the the life of its host and will reactivate uh, with particular cues, sometimes associated with damage or infections with other viruses and an array of other things. But that was not an easy circuit. To, to tease apart and to understand. Uh, that, that took like decades of intensive how many, study. How many different examples of this do we have? And is there, are there different flavors well, all, of this? All of uh, the herpes viruses have a tendency to establish lifelong, uh, human herpes virus, lifelong infections in a parent. And they don't, do, they don't do this by the same exact mechanism. So there's a, an array of method they use to, to set this. It's always very intricate. It's a very um, intimate relationship between the virus and the host, particularly the host immune system, the host immune reactivation. Uh, so in order for a virus to be capable 
of having such a relationship with its host, it really has to have the uh, sort of the machinery, the context of how that host immune system is observing it, reacting to it, getting rid of it, and how it can counteract that and hide and be latent. HIV has a latency phase too, and that was a what made it rather startling in the initial studies that this virus can actually just completely go silent uh, and pop up later and start making virus again. So that made it particularly difficult. Uh, so what are, what are some examples of how this happens? Well, in humans, we have an array of them. They're not, none of them are the same as each other. So there's an array of mechanisms uh, that are used by these various viruses to do that. In many cases, how that happens is not very well understood. For example, with papillomaviruses, uh, the virus seems to set up uh, residence in a basal cell of the skin, and it just sits there as a replicon, uh, hardly expressing anything, a couple of early genes. And when that cell commits to terminally differentiate, it will reactivate and start replicating to high levels in virus. It's tied into the differentiation program of the host cell itself, but it's the basal cell that maintains the viral DNA in a very controlled and steady level. So it divides, it divides in a cell-controlled manner. Does, it's not a runaway replica will happen with differentiation. So that's a, that's a very different mechanism than what we just talked about with the herpes. Yeah. Right. You know, so I can't, I can't generalize on this topic. You're asking me to give you a general answer, and there is no general answer. It's very peculiar. Well, I mean, just, yeah, that's one example. That's good. What, um, like, for instance, where do uh, flu viruses go in the quote-unquote off-season? Where do you think they go? Well, flu, if you trace the phylogenetic history of influenza, it's now present, you know, there's – there's different ways a virus can maintain itself in a population. A disease causing acute virus that doesn't persist in an individual, uh, like, say, influenza or colds and things like that, um, can persist in a population having to do with the rate of transfer and the rate of newborns or uninfected uh, people being presented to the virus. So it's, once you get a large population of hosts, like a herd or humans, then you can set up a persistent acute infection that propagates in that population. This doesn't work well in hosts that have non-gregarious small populations. If you were a hunter-gatherer, for example, and just had you know, 13 people in the group or something like that, uh, that an acute virus comes in, uh, everybody gets infected, cured, and it's gone. Uh, you can't maintain it. But in a big population, you can maintain it indefinitely. Things like smallpox operate there. That's why we're able to get rid of it. Uh, with immunity because you could trace around uh, where infectious points were happening and immunize people that were likely to be exposed and pretty soon the virus had no place to go. But with mm. the persistent infection, it's a lot harder job to get rid of it. Uh, trying to get rid of herpes from the human population is probably beyond our capacity right now. Uh, similarly, trying to get rid of HIV is quite difficult because of this latency that's capable. And also immunity doesn't really seem to clear that virus the way many other viruses are cleared. So what do you think is going to happen with the SARS-CoV-2? This, the fact that it's transmitted for a period of time in asymptomatic individuals really makes it difficult uh, to, to sort of sit on this thing properly. There is a, a variety of antivirals that are uh, encouraging in terms of the original uh, clinical assessments. And it's, you know, it's conceivable that you could surround uh, points of infection with, uh, with uh, antivirals as w well as a vaccine. But I'm pretty sure a vaccine will eventually be made against this virus because people do get over the infection and they are at least free of the virus for a period of time. So that, to me, suggests that vaccine approaches must work eventually, unlike HIV, where we basically had no survivors of the infection without intervention using So for that, I always thought vaccines would be problematic, and to this day, we succeeded in generating a vaccine against that virus. But in this case, I do think it's quite likely 
And the problem is, and this is something that when I established the center at Irvine, there was really an objective to establishing that. It was to try to put together a team of people that could anticipate and rapidly respond to an emerging new virus and generate all the things that you would need to combat that virus. For example, sequence it, uh, express the genes, determine the immune reaction to it, what was generate a very rapid vaccine, scan for antivirals in, in a way that would be uh, forward-looking. And, you know, it is possible to anticipate where these viruses come from. I just mentioned, for example, that uh, there, are, there are a finite number of uh, coronaviruses in various species in various parts of the world. They exist in these clades of uh, related sequences to each other. And if you just concentrate on the uh, immunoprotective region of the virus, like the spike protein, and you look at the clades that exist, you could probably guess at, uh, at the possibilities. And maybe you'd have to make 100 or 200, maybe even 400 versions of this gene, but that's not a big deal to hardly do. And you can start preparing uh, vaccines for anything that might emerge from that clade. And these are the kinds of things that we were trying to uh, design and anticipate years ago. But after the SARS outbreak, uh, we, we had a good uh, coronavirologist in our group, is Mike Buckmars' his name, and we had a BSL-3 lab. We had uh, two BSL-3 labs. We had an animal facility. We had sort of everything in place to move forward. But once they got rid of SARS as a threat, the research and the money for it pretty much dried up. So People kind of went their own way. That's always been the problem. I don't know that an academic setting is the appropriate setting uh, for creating the kind of resources you need to fight a pandemic. I think we need so, some other concept. Yeah. What do you think of the the response right now of you know cities and countries you know having quarantines and I mean do you think this will be effective and what do you think uh, will it, be the, we're going to see over the next year? It's all we have until uh, the uh, antivirals and vaccines come on board, and we've, we have to make it work. <laughs> we don't have any other choice. Uh, there is evidence that it does work. We've seen it occur in numerous countries where the exponential growth of the uh, epidemic has been clearly stopped. So that is encouraging that things can be done. But in, in certain countries, it's just much harder to enforce this type of uh, uniform behavior than in other countries. Yeah. And you see people, uh, you know, purposefully violate quarantine in various parts of the world. And they really put other people's life in grave danger by doing them selfish behavior, but it does exist and mistake to think that uh, it's not going to be a problem. Look at what happened in the beaches of Florida just recently right, with spring break. Young people have the mindset that this virus can't uh, harm them, which is not true, by the way. Uh, and therefore that uh, if they get it, it's just going to be a flu. And that view has been propagated by some irresponsible people in the public media that uh, this is just a uh, no big deal. They don't pay attention to what's going on in, in Italy, where you have hundreds of people on ventilators and hospitals are completely overrun. It's not even pay, played out yet. It's going to be way beyond capacity. So, yeah, the, why do you why do you think that um, Italy? You know, they've been supposedly in the in quarantine for a while. Why do the numbers keep growing so fast? Is it well, that within there the is, household now it's going to everyone else, or, or what? There is a. Uh, a delay because of this capacity to be transmitted in apparently you have this whole it's like you've already made the next generation of virus and it just hasn't grown up yet and even if you stop transmitting it uh, immediately that generation is still going to come uh, to fruition and infect people and cause disease so there's a, a lag phase of about four weeks time uh, you stop transmission to you stop some infection and we're in that that period right four you know, weeks i thought it was uh it was I don't know, it's just a matter of days, like uh, no, you know, 5, uh, 10, 15 days. If you actually look at data, not what people can expect, it's not what they think the life cycle is. If you look, for example, at 
Korea, then you see that it's really on the scale of more like four weeks, not two weeks, but longer. Wow. So during that time period, you have this significant propagation that still has to play out and the numbers continue to go up. And then once that has played out, then so we're in a period right now, we're like, uh, what have people estimated about 10 weeks, 10 days rather behind Italy, maybe two weeks, but it's on that scale. Sobering to think of the consequence of this country continue. And when you have people who, you know, I read a, um, an essay by a infectious disease doc in medicine in Italy, who runs a, a hospital group there in Northern Italy, someplace, I don't remember the name. But she said, in her opinion, that it was really the lax attitude of the people to the seriousness of this disease that contributed a lot to the fact that it got such good foothold and propagated so much in the country. And not only, and not until they really saw the emergency rooms filling up you know, the halls with all these intubated people and people started dying in significant numbers did it sink in that this is really a serious state. But initially, it was like the attitude you're seeing on the beaches of Florida. Oh, I'm young. It's not going to affect me. Uh, I want to hang out with other people and have fun, and I'm not going to ruin my life. But you're, you ruin the lives of others. You kill others at uh, acting socially responsible. Well, what do you think is going on in the, uh, the latency period for this virus or for other viruses? Like, why, why is there a latency period? What is the virus doing day, I, day, I knew five, that, day one? Experimentally, that's a, to me, it's an extremely fascinating question. How do viruses uh, become basically inapparent in their host. Uh, to, this has been, a, for me, a, a question that has fascinated me since the early 70s when I first started working uh, with viruses. And at the time, we thought defective viruses might be mediators of uh, preventing a virus from replicating very quickly. That idea didn't pan out in terms of acute viruses, but it sort of did pan out in terms of endogenous viruses because there are a lot of defective endogenous viruses in genomes that have a big consequence uh, to the kinds of retroviruses they can or cannot support. And then these things become, you know, central participants uh, in the regulatory networks of the host cells themselves. That's a huge topic in and of itself. But I just, I just wanted to touch on this one because it's currently so important and people are responding to it in ways that uh, are kind of unprecedented. Um, but let me just interject an idea here, uh, one that might be viral in, in terms of spreading about how, um, what is the importance of communication in life. This is a topic that is typically missing definitions and considerations. You know, you have kind of a physical, a mechanical view of, of life. It uh, goes back to the 19th and 20th century. Um, and we've never really accepted that communication, context-specific, meaningful communication, is a crucial uh, element of all living things. And it's a crucial element for the origin of all living. And that's an argument that can be explored probably at some other time. But... Yeah. My uh, point would be just consider this event that's happening now as an event of communication. Here we have uh, this little bit of epigenomic information from a bat. It's 10,000 letters, not even words, 10,000 letters long. Mm. And it's been sent to uh, instruct human, human cells uh, to do something that they had not previously done, make this coronavirus. And this, this communication has brought the entire culture and technology and science of the world to its knees with the power that it has exerted over human biology. And just contemplate for a little while how, um, how sort of amazing it is for that little bit of instruction to have that consequence. And then you start to understand the power of transmissible 
communication uh, in biology generally and why it's such a crucial aspect to living. Hmm. What, um, what do you think is going to happen in, for instance, China and Italy, you know, over the next month or two or six months, and then maybe the world over the next year? Well, we, we had an opportunity to stomp on this thing early. Uh, and some countries are acted like if you look at what's happened in Vietnam, you see they took it seriously and, and they, it was consequential in terms of preventing the increase in the early numbers. And, and we let things get going here by pretending it wasn't a big deal. It's just a flu. I, I'm not worried about it. You know, uh, it'll go away in the summer. I don't know where any of these thoughts come from. To me, it was just startling that uh, more serious attention wasn't being paid to it. I was, I was concerned. In the very first week I heard about this virus because of the transmissibility and what it was doing. Um, so we let it get a foothold in this country. And now these, this delay growth that we were talking about is happening. So probably uh, we're going to get to a point where Italy is just about now before we stop the propagation of it. And that means our uh, hospitals are going to be stressed enormously. If we can get these antivirals online quickly, since the, some of them are FDA approved, uh, if we wrapped that, if we had ramped that up last month when we had the opportunity to, to get it in place ahead of time, hmm. we, we would be. In my, we need to protect the medical staff, particularly. Um, yeah, yeah. They they have to be protected from this infection because if if they go down, really up the creek. Uh, so we should pull out all stops to to produce these at least these materials that we know are active. We have three or four of them in front of us right now. Oh, and, what what are they and uh, and how do they work? By the way. Well, there is a uh, there's one that was developed uh, to combat uh, Ebola, and it's a, an inhibitor of RNA polymerase. It's an adenosine analog, remdesivir, I think it's called, but it's a, it's an aden- mod- modified adenosine which uh, gets taken into the cell, gets triphosphorylated, and it gets incorporated. It's a chain terminator, it's called, and it turns out that the uh, coronaviruses are rather unusual RNA viruses. They're very large for an RNA virus, and they have what's called a, an error-correcting component to its polymerase. And it turns out that that makes it susceptible to this chain termination uh, chemical, this adenosine. And that's just happenstance that that exists. It was developed against e- Ebola, but it seems to work uh, quite well against almost all the uh, coronaviruses that have been evaluated. That's in clinical trials right now, but the uh, early, early results are quite encouraging that it, in fact, is working. And there's a couple of others, too. There's uh, chloroquine, uh, modified versions of chloroquine, which for reasons that I find a bit curious, you know, it affects the pH of these vesicles and their ability to either become infected or package infected uh, virus and put it outside the cell. And hmm. for reasons that are, are fortuitous, it seems to be rather effective against the transmission of uh, this coronavirus. And then there's another drug, and the name is escaping me, that was developed in Japan against influenza. And it's also being used currently as a, an available drug, but I don't think it's highly available in this country. And it true also has shown to be quite effective uh, against um, coronavirus by preliminary clinical trials. So we do have things in front of us that look quite encouraging, and we should just be pulling that all stop and producing this in mass and at least using it to protect our, our medical professional. Real, real should health. any of these uh, drugs be used prophylactically or only when you're sick? And if well, you're sick, for example, sick. The, the chloroquine, um, like drugs, seem to be most effective if used early on, and that's true of the one from Japan as well. The uh, remdesivir, the uh, adenosine analog, that actually seems to be functional even later when pneumonia at least the few cases I've seen, be capable of intervening. You know, why, why, the, why we end up with this um, 
over-exaggerated inflammatory reaction in the lungs is a fascinating question. It doesn't happen all the time. What, what triggers this? What, there's some tipping point that's, uh, that occurs. Uh, my suspicion is that you know, inflammatory disease are a bane of age. As you age, you're prone to them, arthritis, an array of other things. And somehow the immune system seems to be positioned, at least in a lot of older people, to, um, to transition into this, uh, this auto-inflammatory state. And I think the virus is those lines, but we don't have a clue about the specifics. But that, you know, a lot of younger people can have that state as well. A lot of younger people have an array of uh, autoimmune tendencies, and I imagine the virus throwing monkey wrenches in that process as well. And that's why you see some young people can have a very severe reaction. At least that would be my guess. But we don't understand the details of any of that anyway. Uh, and this is going to take a long time to sort out. Um, but, uh, okay, so you've explained how some of the antivirals work. Um, in terms of a vaccine, it seems like a lot of sources are saying it would take quite a long time to have one. I don't I buy that. That that attitude to me is irritating. Um, and this is one of the things that we tried to establish in the Center for Virus Research years ago when I was a director. Some Many years ago when I was at the University of Colorado, I did an unusual experiment and I didn't appreciate the consequences of it at the time. I made a plasmid that had the, the mouse polyomavirus in it and it was... Uh, it had a duplicated region, so by homologous recombination, this, this plasmid would actually pop out uh, the fully infectious circular form of the viral DNA. We just took this plasmid DNA and we injected it into a mouse, and lo and behold, the mouse got infected, immune, and cured uh, because of this DNA that was put into it. I didn't think it was a, um, a new technology that could... Uh, really take off as much as it did, but others pursued it, including one of the people we hired at, at UCI at that time, Phil Feldner, and said, well, why not just use DNA as a vaccine? Because that's cheap, fast to make. You can make tons of DNA in weeks or a month. You know, there was a company in San Diego that sequenced uh, the coronavirus uh, spike protein in three hours, I believe, after they'd gotten the sequence and made it oh. into a DNA vaccine. So in theory, that can be rendered very quickly. And if you had this pre-set up, so that, you know, it, nucleic acid vaccines overall look like they tend to be rather safe. They're, they're not, they don't have a capacity for infection. Uh, the nucleic acids themselves can be made in such a way that they don't tend to cause uh, bad immunogenic reactions. So it, it's a relatively safe platform. If you could just iron this all out, you could have it pre-established. So all you have to do is drop in that sequence in a matter of hours. And in a matter of, uh, of a week or two, you could have enough material to initiate a clinical trial and get, and as soon as you can get the serum from these, uh, these people who have volunteered and you show that it's uh, neutralized, it'll neutralize the virus production in culture. I think that's sufficient to start moving forward on it. So in my estimation, you could really start uh, making materials about two months after, after an agent is identified, if you had it all laid out and, and planned ahead of time. And, but that's not the case. None of this is laid out. None of this is planned ahead of time. You have to go through all these steps uh, to show safety. But I've had this conversation with people at various levels of government for, for decades. You know, we can't anticipate this stuff. We can do stuff about it. Uh, we can anticipate the virus, where it might come from. We can anticipate the immunogenic protective component of that virus. We can anticipate a rapid nucleic acid or other technologies that will intervene very quickly. RNA interference is another very rapid technology that could be employed. And we could set this up ahead of time, but uh, we just don't have the, we don't take it seriously. We don't invest. Look at, for a few million bucks, we probably could have worked this all out ahead of time 
And now the world has taken, what, a $6 trillion hit as a consequence of this pandemic. The cost effectiveness is just astounding. So do you think that literally every day uh, ideas like this will be more listened to and as it gets more serious that things will move faster and faster? Or what's your estimation? Well, there is a lot of talented biotechnology, particularly in this country. If you, if you let them loose, encourage them more, I think they can move very quickly on this. And we're already seeing signs of that. But uh, Why is the traditional method that we have, you know, we have a uh, we have a some a remnant of the military, the CDC, which is still under military. The CDC is a excellent for monitoring, but it has never been a place you go to for rapid new technology. Just not the way they work, and that's not who they are. And yet, when we want them to uh, come up with an assessment for this new virus, you know, we're completely dependent on their on their methods and their technology. We we need to engage a different mindset in which we bring we bring to bear uh, all the capacity. And there's a lot of capacity in this case to come up with ingenious solutions and move very quickly to somehow encourage that and allow that to happen. Of course, you have to you have to worry about safety, but there's ways to address that too. Why is there not a um a coordination between various world governments and say like, all right, we're setting up a, a hundred billion fund or 500 billion fund right now. We have 4,000 labs all working on it. We're divided up the problem into nine you know, aspects. I, I, and tried to do something, I tried to do something along those lines, the center for virus. That was an academic setting and an academic setting is just the wrong habitat because for example, a lot of this work can be rather tedious. If you have to go out and isolate 400 capsid genes from coronaviruses in order to cover the biosphere or the virusphere that uh, is the potential threat, yeah, that's boring work. You're not going to get uh, grants. You're not going to get uh, papers. You're not going to train students. You, know, you just have to slog through it in order to uh, acquire all the reagents and molecules and identities of everything that you, you want to have on hand. Infectious agent uh, makes its way into a, a human and starts propagating. Uh, so there's no mechanism that I know of right now. I guess uh, um, there, are, there are some movements now. Uh, there are um, an institute, what's it called? There is a consortium that got put together this, that's trying to work in this direction, but it's just now starting. Uh, and I don't know how sustainable it is. It's, it depends on private contributions, from what I can see. Governments don't really pay into this, as far as I know. Certainly the United States has. The last time there was any somewhat effective thinking along these lines was when uh, the Army had, uh, had some um, labs that would try to make vaccines for exotic places that they might end up being at someday. And they would anticipate the kinds of diseases that uh, soldiers would encounter. And they, they would make vaccines that nobody else was making. Uh, but that stopped uh, happening in, I think, the Nixon administration. Uh, so it's been a long time that we haven't had any kind of organized process that tries to anticipate uh, vaccine uses for things that are commercially viable. None of this is commercially viable, by the way, until it happens. And then every, every, nothing is commercially viable once it does happen because it throws a monkey wrench in everything. So what, what do you think will happen? Do you think that the SARS-CoV-2 will be with us forever? We'll just have vaccines for it and it'll recur every year? No, I have the suspicion that we can we can eliminate this because it doesn't have the uh, features of flu. For example, flu picks up new chunks of uh, of genome. It's a segmented RNA virus, and uh, we have a pool of of lots of these segments that exist in the uh, waterfowl and birds. Uh, water bird is probably the original uh, persistent species from which flu emerged uh, the first time before it adapted to humans. 
Now it's versions of it are permanent human viruses. So in that case, you're always struggling with changes that are occurring. In the case of uh, this coronavirus, it's a large RNA virus. Uh, people thought maybe it was it picked up a recombinant piece. The sequence data doesn't support that. It looks like it's it came uh, directly from a bat into a human. Some people suspect some other species was involved as an intermediate, but I haven't seen any genetic evidence really would substantiate that. Um, but still, that's a possibility, and that certainly has happened. But my uh, point is that it looks to be relatively stable. It doesn't have a dynamic, a highly dynamic genome. So it should be susceptible to uh, immune elimination along the lines of uh, like smallpox or measles could be. For, uh, so if the world puts its mind to it, I suspect it could be eliminating the population. Whether that's possible, because the world has trouble putting its mind on, that's a, that's a, it's not a scientific once someone has, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and recovers, do you think they'll get it again? Are they going to be a carrier for it? From that well, on? that's a fascinating question because to me, uh, this virus is, is a bit atypical. And I think it has, well, first of all, it's, it's, it is damaging the immune system, the leukopenia that you see early. And we don't know what's going on there. So what, it, is, uh, what is leukopenia? It's your white blood cell count goes down noticeably uh, at the beginning of the infection with this virus. That's kind of like what HIV does. Right? It really knocks down mm. the ability of the immune system to respond. So this virus seems to have some of that character to it, but we, haven't, we don't know any of the details of what's actually happening. And uh, what it looks to me is that uh, you have a significant number of patients that once they recover, at least if you can believe the reports that have been published, that you're still capable of isolating uh, genetic material from the lungs of these people. This is a lot like what happens when the virus is in a bat. Um, it sets up a low-level production of the virus in the lungs of, and also other mucosal tissue of these animals, and it'll do that for a very long time. During a reproductive cycle, it will frequently induce uh, higher levels of virus uh, production. So it simulates, to some degree, the persistent state that you see in a bat, and that's a lot more troubling. But from what I know of transmission data, those patients that are showing some virus in their lungs don't seem to be the source of transmission, at least not yet. So I don't really see it as a, uh, a state in which you have uh, recurring infections coming back and producing. I don't think the data has shown that yet, although it seems like a, still a possibility. But what I suspect is if we make a traditional vaccine, we're immunizing people without all of the machinery that the virus has to manipulate the immune response and to hide out. So you will get a straightforward immune reaction that I suspect was to prevent infection from propagating a persistent state to emerge. So I guess right, I should be clear. So once someone has SARS-CoV-2 and recovers, right now it doesn't seem like they'll be able to, uh, they may have a low level of infection, but it doesn't seem like they're able to spread it or are they? And what, what's the predominant method right now? The, uh, I think there was a, a Chinese data uh, study that was published recently that tried to address that. And according to that set of data, it did not look like these people were propagating uh, infections to others after they had recovered. So as of now, it doesn't look like. But it's troubling that you were isolating RNA after, you know, usually when you're over a virus, it's a sterilizing uh, cure. Your immune system gets rid of all of the virus, right? There's no more to be found. Uh, the fact that some of it is, is still detectable is quite troubling. Um, but as of now, it doesn't look like they are the source of continued infection. That could change, though. The, the, one of the things that people fail to realize is these are living entities, and uh, we're a new host for it. 
and it's exploring all the sequence place and all the possibilities. You know, the initial infection looked like it was being transmitted by people that had the severe pneumonia. So they just isolated them and that reduced the transmission rate quite a lot. And then what, what we see come up is that these asymptomatic uh, infected people are now a major source of transmission. And even though they're making a lot less virus than the ones with the pneumonia, it's still plenty uh, for the virus to propagate. So that's a different pathway it's taking than what it may have taken at the beginning. So these are dynamic living things. You know, I know people like to argue, including some of my colleagues, the viruses are not alive. And that argument only applies to the virion outside the cell. Once they get into a cell, they have all the characteristics of living entities. They're active, they're changing, communicate, and uh, you can kill them. To me, at that level of, of thinking, at the level of a virus, the distinction between a virus form of life. Um, is SARS-CoV-2... Um... I don't really call it, want to call it mutating, but is it adapting into different forms, some more virulent, some well, less virulent? Here's where I have a difference with many of my colleagues in terms of thinking about it. I was, um, my mentor was somebody who studied intensely uh, the population of RNA genomes and viruses called quasi-species. His name was John Holland. Uh, and uh, he measured it very, rather, by rather direct mechanisms and came to some startling conclusions about the nature of these populations of RNA. Now, this is kind of in violation to uh, the traditional thinking of evolutionary biologists because uh, the, the consensus sequence of a population of RNA virus genomes is considered the master fittest type. But according to quasi-species laboratory assessments, the consensus is just the average. And within that population, you have a, a diversity of variation that has different features and different characteristics, some of which can inhibit the entire population. Some of them are counteracting all the other viruses. Some of them are promoting them. You have all these relationships really? in this population. These are measured phenomena. These are just theories. Hey, uh, so you're saying a, a contingent of viruses is not just one. There are many different ones, and there's active competition amongst them? There can be, but this particular virus has, in fact, that's measured in, in the case of a lot of RNA viruses. But this particular one has a feature that is a little different, error-correcting polymerase, so it has a more narrow population. But it's not zero. It's still a population. And because of this, we can track infections uh, from different people in different continents, from different sources, because that population is always drifting. People want to say that you've had mutation and that uh, the master fittest type has been mutated a little bit here and there and then follow this. But really, it is the inherent dynamics of quasi-species propagation that it will always drift. It's almost unpreventable. And as a consequence, you can trace, for example, that this virus went through a certain countries, say Korea, from China to Korea, to the, through Italy, and so And you can actually trace uh, the transmission of virus uh, from people to people because this consensus is always drifting a little bit, uh, which makes it a lot more dynamic than we think about. It. To what extent has, uh, have viruses seen the drift and where do they drift into? Do they drift into, again, more on average virulent states or do they there's, tend to go no, towards more uh, host compatible states? There, that depends on the circumstance. I mean, you can imagine if, if uh, people with pneumonia were just all over the place and you're making the most amount of virus when you have that state that that would be the major mechanism of transmission to the host. And by the way, this is where uh, physicians and healthcare professionals are really at risk because they're intubating these patients right into this organ that is just filled with virus uh, on a scale that uh, most people don't encounter. So in that case, 
you could see that, okay, you're selecting, if it always transmits that way, you would be selecting for a virus that promotes uh, pneumonia. In the case where you are selecting for a virus that's being transmitted during an asymptomatic state, I am reluctant to say that this is going to uh, result in a virus that's less virulent because I know that in it, from its original host, the virus retains the capacity. It, it never becomes uh, an innocuous entity in the bat. It retains the capacity for harm in other species and other populations, part of its. So I don't think it's going to lose that. I don't think it's going to become an innocuous uh, symbiotic virus. It's always going to retain some because of the sort of more fundamental relationship that it comes So I guess it comes from two sides. If it's too innocuous, it doesn't spread as best it can. It's not doing its job and, you know, achieving reproductive goals, let's say. And if it's too harmful and if it's spreading and killing too fast, that's also detrimental. So I guess they're Maybe there's a self-limiting mechanism on the virulent side, and then there's a, a no. drive on the non-virulent side. I, don't I know. mean, I've heard that argument an awful lot over the decades, uh, but in my view, I, I don't really know that that holds up scrutiny. For example, uh, a virus like rabies is uniformly lethal. Uh, it does not become, unless you're a bat that has a little bit of rabies in its DNA, which some of them do, by the way, uh, you're not... In most hosts, you get the virus into the central nervous system. It's, it's lethal. That's it. You know, there's almost no survival. Zero. Um, so you don't necessarily have a, a virus that is too lethal to work. If the population can support it, then it will be supported. If a, a, an innocuous virus uh, can be uh, very successful if it successfully gets into the next generation at a highly reliable rate for example, gets passed from mother to offspring or from father to, at, at a very high rate. And a lot of persistent infections do just that um, by mechanisms that are variable and frequently. So depending on the population structure of your host, you can have these vastly different relations with, uh, with the virus. And in some cases, even though it's an innocuous virus, it retains the capacity to harm population. Even, so even is there... bacteria show that. Bacteria, uh, the whole concept of lysogeny was one bacteria had a virus in it. When you mix it with another bacteria, that virus kills it and causes lysis, the origin of misogyny. So, I mean, th these relationships, they go all up and down the phylogenetic tree. They're very constant. So is there a driver for some viruses to endogenize, for other ones to, you know, just kill, and for other ones to stay at some, you know, sustainable set point of virulence versus, uh, you know, permanence in hosts? Uh, that's a very complicated question, and different lineages of life have their own distinct and peculiar relationships in, in that regard. For example, uh, in plants, we see a very large abundance of RNA viruses, particularly the plus trans, just ubiquitous in, in higher plants. In lower plants, in fungi and so forth, we see a huge abundance of double-stranded RNA. In bacteria, we see uh, medium to large-sized DNA viruses are hugely in uh, some certain lineages of uh, primates and of rodents, we see endogenous retroviruses. So you can't really answer that generally because it's lineage-specific relationship, and it's peculiar uh, to you know what what is happening uh, in a plant with uh, a million copies of something like a pararetrovirus, uh, a pine, for example, situation like that, versus what you see in a bacteria, which has none of that. Right? They're vastly different uh, virus-host relationships. Well, why do you think there are these different relationships? I know part of it is, you know, the virus is made how it's made, but... Well, the virus... The virus, is, well, the virus... Remember this point I made about how this 
this virus has brought the world to its knees is just a 10,000 letter instruction from, from a bat to us. The, the viruses are entities that are competent uh, in code. They're competent in meaningful biological code. And as a consequence, they are the ones that can really um, direct and affect uh, the survivability of the lineages they're interacting. So if you look at the most dynamic part of any genome of any organism, it's usually usually the infectious material that has come into the genome from an exogenous source. We call these things transposons or defective retroviruses, or sometimes they're DNA viruses. Depends on the lineage of life. The relationships are quite distinct. We used to call this stuff junk. Uh, years back when I was a graduate student. But uh, many people always kind of shook their head and said, no, life doesn't work that way. That can't be right. And uh, it took us a long time to sort out the fact that that answer was quite wrong because this stuff, this parasitic material that's colonizing genomes very uh, recently, is the material that's regulating uh, the networks of the expression of the gene. So these uh, infectious entities, these uh, like long-terminal repeats from retroviruses, they get scattered all over the genome. And they end up making regulatory RNAs that, that completely reprogram the network itself of the host cell. Uh, so they are bringing in a capacity for communication and network formation that's just light years beyond what you can do with point mutations and errors. Darwinian think about. Mm. I have a, I guess a, a strange question I've been thinking about. Um, you know, I've learned a bit about extracellular vesicles, for instance, and plasmids and bacteria, and they seem to have a lot of the hallmarks of how viruses act. You know, they, EV is, let's say, contain RNA and they can enter into other cells and they can change gene expression. And, you know, in cancer, it seems like they assist in niche construction and they, they seem kind of like a flavor of virus. I mean, what, yeah. what are your thoughts there? I suspect that's their origin. Uh, and if you can reconstruct them back far enough, and that's always not easy to do, you would probably find at, at the very introduction into that particular lineage of life, that uh, it was part of a viral colonization for most of these uh, kinds of entities that we're talking about. Uh, I've done that analysis in a few cases, but there's like endless, endless examples that need to be explored, that I suspect. Have. Like, let's say for our cells, do you think that a long, long time ago, a virus endogenized, and some of its genes have been repurposed by cells to create EVs, and that's how they're able to do it? Well, there's a very strong example of that. I mean, we can talk about the brain and we can talk about sight and cognition and so forth because there's a lot of um, regulatory parasitic uh, RNA that's involved in the regulation of those higher functions like line elements, things like that. But that's a, that's a big topic that I don't want to get into. I want to get into my favorite one. And this is the origin of motherhood, the origin of the placenta. Uh, and uh, in the context of other mammals, back when uh, they're... Uh, most of the life forms at the time were egg laying. Um, and we created somehow the capacity uh, to have the embryo grow up in the mother, exchange blood with the mother, yet not be immunologically recognized and destroyed by the mother's immune system, which is not a trivial thing to do. You know, if you think about all the problems you would have to solve. And not only that, you have to affect mother's behavior an awful lot. Uh, to take care of and defend. And so these really complicated transition to invent motherhood in a placenta. And if you look for the, plus, uh, the, the footprints of what happened in the origin of placenta, you see there's virus all over that story, an array of uh, endogenous viruses that entered uh, the genomes of the early and later placentals and are responsible for some of the core functions, like uh, the placenta itself, one of its 
main functional uh, proteins is syncytion. It's a protein that causes the cells to fuse because the placenta is this fused layer that runs the, the embryo. That is directly derived from uh, the envelope of an endogenous retrovirus, the genes that do that. And there's different examples of them. The ones in different lineages of life use different versions of different viruses to do that same thing. So that story looks very much like a virus uh, story in that the virus was crucially involved in the creation and the invention of the placenta and uh, of the like, sort of the motherhood uh, relationship that uh, followed. It was also created at that story. I, I, I published a paper on it a few years back, but I think that's it was, amazing. I mean, essentially, it boils down to, in plain speak, there would be no mammals without viruses. Well, I would say, if I would take it further, I would say there'd be no life, because even RNA replicators required communicating um, entities, infectious communicating entities that were other RNA, uh, sort of subfunctional RNA participants, in order to get a consortia of sort of small snapback RNAs to function in the context of replication and translation. Uh, you had to have this feature is feature of uh, transmission and communication. So communication is, the argument is that communication is fundamental to the origin, evolution, and the maintenance of life. And it's not taken into account by any biophysical theory because communication has history and context dependence that is crucial for its function. You know, meaning is not, is, is not an absolute thing. It depends on the context and the circumstance in which uh, the particular code gets implemented. So if you're colonized with a viral sequence, for example, you can imagine two outcomes. That virus can make an antisense that protects you here on out from any virus of that type. Or it can uh, produce virus from the sense that will uh, replicate in tissue and destroy them. You have two diametrically opposed outcomes depending on the context of that particular code. And, and this is the nature of biological information. It's meaningful characteristic to it. And it really defies mathematical modeling and physical thinking. And, and this really... I guess it gets under the skin of my colleagues because nobody wants to admit that you can't mathematically model something. Well, it's just weird because viruses, you know, if you take the point of view that they're alive, I mean, they have agency, but then parts of them are used as tools by bacteria, you know, our cell, eukaryotic cells and everything. It's just, it's just really weird. They, um, they are, I guess, an independent entity and then they're not when they endogenize or when pieces of them again are used as, as tools, so they have like many roles. They're also communication themselves. It's just yeah, they are. They are meaningful communication, and they're not mistakes. I mean, they do include diversity, and they do exchange and swap and reconstruct code. They edit code, their own code, and the code of the host. They are authentic editors, uh, and not in a way that's just mistake driven, this random drift, because it has to have a functional and meaningful character. So, to me, uh, if you think about the tree of life, and you don't think about viruses, you're going to understand. Well, at least, you know, we've talked for a long time. Um, I know I, I need to be respectful of your time. I know you're emeritus as a professor, but you know, obviously your, your mind is still super active and I, I know you're doing stuff. What's the best way for people to learn more about what you've done and what you're doing? You know, I sent you that link for uh, this new definition of life that Gunther Whitsony just published on that Frontier article. Mm -hmm. I think from that, he refers to a lot of the uh, references that uh, we've briefly mentioned. That might be a good starting point because that confronts a very fundamental topic, right? Can we and how do we define life? Do we need to include uh, communication, meaningful communication? And his answer, and his answer, that's viral. Hmm. Well, very cool. Well, Luis, thank you for, uh, for coming back. I really appreciate it. It's always great mm -hmm. to talk to you. My pleasure. And I hope uh, circumstances improve. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.